0: Greetings and welcome to the Talking Reggae Podcast. As always, I am Jay of Street Level Uprising. Welcome back to Season 6 Talking Reggae Podcast. My guest today has written books on the Beatles and Fleetwood Mac. Now he's got a great book out called Bob Marley and the Whalers, The Ultimate Illustrated History. Please welcome Richie Unterberger. Richie, how are you, man? I'm good. Thanks for having me on, Jay. Oh, no problem, man. So um, I want to get right into it, but I start in the same place with all of my guests here on Talking Reggae, which is, if you would, just take a minute and tell me about your first memories of hearing reggae music.
1: I first heard reggae music when I was about 11 years old. This is 1973 on Whalers Catch a Fire, which was maybe the first album to get a lot of airplay on United States FM radio. I'm really not sure. But whether it was Bob Marley or maybe Jimmy Cliff or Toots and the Maytals, it immediately stood out whatever I heard because the beat and the vocal phrasing was so different. I can back up for a second. Now I'm remembering, although it's called reggae music, Jimmy Cliff had a pretty big hit in the United States around 1970, Wonderful World, Beautiful People. I definitely heard that when I was eight years old, but it wasn't described as reggae music, either by the radio disc jockey or in whatever music press I was able to read. By 1973, I was reading things like Rolling Stone and whatever I could find in daily papers. But that would be my first relatively clear memory of hearing reggae music.
0: Like I said at the top, you've written books on the Beatles, Fleetwood Mac, Um, You're an accomplished author. You're a teacher. What made you want to write about Bob Marley and tell his story?
1: I'd written for the publisher before. That was the book on Fleetwood Mac. And the format that the publisher uses for their music books, they're not really text-heavy. There are other Marley biographies, which I cite in the book, which have a lot more detail, but the books are oriented toward using a lot of illustrations from throughout an artist's career and giving what I hope is a good career overview that any listener can appreciate. Whether you're hearing Bob Marlin and the Wailers for the first time, you might be very young, or you know a fair amount about him, you have some of his records, but there's some stuff that you want to bring to light. Something that I really wanted to do with this book and other books have done this, but not everyone does. Bob Marley and the Wailers had a long career that predated their exposure to a global audience by about 10 years. And I think some of their best music was done in the time before that, when their audience was primarily in their native Jamaica. And it might have seemed when you heard Catch a Fire, um, when I say you, people in North America or the United Kingdom, for the most part, they wouldn't have known Bob Marley and the Wailers. It might have seemed, well, this really interesting group has kind of come out of nowhere, and it's their first album, Catch a Fire. That's a very important record. But there was a pretty long and interesting evolution that Wailer and the other principal Wailers, Peter Tosh and Bunny Livingston, later Bunny Wailer, went through to get to that point. And maybe the first one quarter, one third of the book is about that evolution when they were not known hardly at all outside of Jamaica. And I think that's important, not just from an historical viewpoint. I think that's when they did some of their best music.
0: This is a fantastic book. It really is. I've read, especially when I was a teenager, I read everything about reggae and Bob Marley. I could get my hands on. I've written, I've sorry, not written. I've read I don't know, maybe a dozen books in my life on on Bob Marley, the Whalers, all that. There's a few things that stood out to me, and and, and I kind of want to go over those one by one and get your reactions to them. One thing I thought was really cool: you have like album reviews as kind of kind of like sidebars in this. As you go through, it's like there's an album review of of Catch a Fire, an album re- review of Burning. Um, what made you put that format into the book for this?
1: To be honest, that was actually the decision of the. Editor, and I should clarify although I wrote some of those reviews, the majority of them were sort of guest reviews, where a writer like Chris Selwich, who's written the whole book on Bob Marley, will write about a specific album. But I agree with that decision because especially if you're not familiar with Bob Marley like you are, Jay, or I might be going into the book. Or even if you are, but you don't have a sense of, well, what was on that album and what made that album different from the ones I know the best? It sort of grounds the reader, I hope, in the progression of his recorded work, which was quite substantial, both while he was working with Peter Tosh and Bonnie Whaler, and then the seven or so years after that, when he was billed as the leader of Bob Marley and the Whalers, but really he was more of a solo artist, I would say than he had been when Tosh and Livingston were taking a lot of the vocals and also doing some of the songwriting.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I should have mentioned that, that there's a lot of uh, guest reviews in there. Um, uh, you mentioned wanting this to be good for someone who might not know much about Bob Marley. I think this book it would be as good as anyone as any book for people to start if they really want to learn about Bob Marley. You do this really cool thing in the book where, I don't know how to describe it, it's detailed yet broad. There's some things in this book that I've never read anywhere before about Bob Marley. There's some things that I've only seen touched on in some places, but not really. But yet it's not so detailed that it's only for You know, the biggest fans who already know most of this stuff. I I think you do a great job of walking that line between someone who's never heard of Bob Marley all the way up to people like me who have read plenty and still read this and go, whoa, you know, I didn't know that. Um, Did you find yourself digging up things that you had never seen anywhere else about Bob Marley?
1: Yes. And there's a bibliography in the back. So I want to make sure readers know that. A lot of the original research that I tied together, I didn't do firsthand. I'm drawing on authors like Chris Laloich and others. But what I hope to do in the book is I've read a good deal, as you have, of literature about reggae. And especially before the mid-70s, the history can be very hard to follow and confusing because unlike, say, soul music in the United States, it wasn't documented very heavily, even in Jamaica And there's all these contradictory stories, and there's different, even from the musicians and producers' accounts. When did this happen? What was the sequence? Was Bob living in the United States at this time, or had he come back? Because he did go back and forth for a few years with his mother living there. And I tried to make in the book uh, relatively easy to follow chronology, and also point out when there are different accounts. Did this happen then? Was such and such on some record, and state, well, it's not known for sure. Something, and this would be a lot of digging on part of the listeners, I have a blog, and I did a three-part series after the book came out, Marley Mysteries, things which still aren't cleared up. After 1973, 74 or or so, his life was pretty heavily documented in the press in Britain and here, and it's not too hard to follow what was going on. But before that, It sort of is. And unfortunately, I'm not going to name names, there are some stories or accounts in other books which seem to be mistaken, or at the very least, the writer wasn't clear about what happened when. And one, for instance, is, well, you think this would be obvious. We all know when Elvis Presley did his first record. We know when he did his first record for his mother at Sun Records in Memphis when it wasn't an official record. When did the Whalers do their first record? And I came up with like three different dates. And it wasn't just like something where only people, maybe like us aficionados would care. Is it July 3rd or July 30th? There were like six or eight months apart and different accounts of how well it sold in Jamaica. So I really wanted to address these. One mystery to me is... Chris Blackwell, of course, from Island Records, deserves a lot of credit for signing the Whalers and not diluting their music, but sort of tweaking it so it became more accessible to a rock audience. I think that he did that pretty well. I know there are different opinions about how he produced that record, Catch a Fire. But were they really unknown in Britain? At that time, which is the impression that some biographies give, did they really come out of nowhere? And Chris Blackwell was like, well, I happen to know their stuff. Nobody else seems to. I'm going to sort of pluck them out of obscurity and make them popular because there was such a big Jamaican community in Britain at that time, which from the mid-60s onward or early 60s had been buying reggae music in huge numbers. Chris Blackwell of Island Records started his label catering to that community before he moved into rock music. I think there might be a touch of, like, poetic mystique given to accounts, not just from Blackwell, but from others, like Bob Marley got the stroke of luck with the Whalers, getting this global record deal. I think there was a burgeoning sort of underground or listenership there, and maybe even in the United States, because Marley did live here and off and on. For a while with his mother where there were people that were starting to pay attention to it but sometimes you need Blackwell and others to give it the final push to make it popular to everybody and although Blackwell and Island Records deserve a lot of credit I think that was inevitable now maybe it would have been Marley alone without the other two whalers but the music has such universal appeal that I think there would have been a breakthrough At some point, maybe it would have been a couple of years after 1973. That's just one instance. I know that was a long answer to the thought that you brought up. Stuff that I was trying to bring out, but also stuff that even having read Marley books before and rereading and finding some others, so I was finding some other material that I was doing this quickly. He was in Sweden for quite a while, working with Rabbit Bundrick, who later played with The Who, and what was he doing there? And what was that movie that like nobody's ever seen where he was doing a soundtrack <laughs> and how did that help him get exposure? It did because Johnny Nash helped get him to Sweden and Johnny Nash, I know people have different opinions, did play a big role in making reggae more popular to non-Jamaican audiences and in a strange way with his manager helping Marley's career.
0: You mentioned Sweden, which is one of the things I wanted to bring up when I was mentioning. Um, there's things in your book I'd never heard before. I, maybe I'd heard someone touch on that, but to show that he spent as long as he did there and what he was working oh. on. Uh, also, uh, you know, you were you were talking about when he lived in the states with his mom. That's something that most books kind of gloss over, or they'll they'll say something yeah. about. Um, uh, you know oh he went and lived with his mom and they make it seem like he was in the states for like 2 weeks and which is just not the case you know he right you know so so there's there's definitely some things that that you've gotten here uh, another thing that fascinated me um the grateful dead you talk about um him going out to see Grateful Dead shows, uh, most likely at the Winterland, although there were debates about that, and the possibility of, of Bill Graham potentially managing him, which would have been, you know, for better or for worse, a completely different tra- trajectory of his career. So wh- where were you finding some of these things, man?
1: Boy, I don't know precisely where I found, for instance, Bill Graham, which you're right, that's a real interesting possibility. Again, the bibliography... I forget how many books it has. It has quite a few, but some of those books have citations in magazines. And also, although you've got to be very careful about what you find online, some of the sources, like Rock's Back Pages, which reprints articles about everything from like 1960 onward, they'll have these little asides and nuggets that sometimes don't get reprinted anywhere else. And just to follow up about Bill Graham, that's a big what-if Bill Graham maybe was a better promoter than a manager. But I don't think that Marley had the best management. And Don Taylor, one of the guys that he hooked up with, I don't think that he was in some senses the most straightforward or ethical manager. A lot of artists have those problems. But I think Marley could have benefited from somebody who was more competent at dealing with an artist who had not just gotten a big audience outside of Jamaica, but was starting to get one of the biggest audiences of anybody, especially as a touring artist. And not just in the UK and North America, but in Europe and Japan and in Africa. You really need somebody who's, I think, very experienced or at least can tap upon the expertise of people with a lot of experience in international entertainment and law and things like that. And Bill Graham had that. Even if Graham didn't manage Marley himself, and Graham was arguably too busy promoting stuff to be a good artist manager, he had great connections where he could have set up Marley with somebody, I think, or a team that was really good.
0: Right, yeah. You know, something I always respected about Bill Graham is the artists that he worked with, always stood up for him and said that he treated them very well and that he you know uh, he took care of them so it is interesting to see you know if he was if marley was under that bill graham umbrella um you know it it is fascinating to think about and you know we've talked about chris blackwell uh, don taylor um you know don taylor took some bullets for bob marley so uh was, you know it was there was obviously that relationship there especially going going forward there uh, but yeah, fascinating to think about, Bill Graham. Um, another thing I like that you do in this book is you go into depth on certain shows and certain tours in a way I haven't seen before. A lot of times it's it's almost like the tours get glossed over. And it's like and you and you also mention in there when you're talking about Peter and Bunny leaving the band, and one of the potential factors for that was that. Uh, like Chris Blackwell said, he wasn't sure that they really wanted a tour. You know, he was presenting this as a, as a rock unit. And the way rock units are done is you tour, 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 tour. And and he felt that, you know, he felt concerned about Peter and Bunny, uh, you know, about whether they were really willing to do that. And you really mentioned the tours, whereas sometimes you read other books and it's like, well, did they, did they tour? Like you barely mentioned that they toured and where they went. Uh, was it important to you to really include this part of Bob Marley and the Whalers to really show just how hardworking, just how important it was to Bob to go out there and create this audience?
1: Yes, from a couple of points, I guess. One is just as a historian, I've done about 15 books now, it frustrates me whether I'm meeting, reading about Joni Mitchell or about Elvis Presley. I as a fan, just read about a great assortment of artists, you're not really sure what happened. I think that's the backbone of any biography. And then you can put in some color and get readers engaged in the music. That's also very important. But I don't think it's good to sort of leave things cloudy as, like, whether did he or she tour ever in this country, or how often could you see them, or when did this album come out, especially because The style is different from the previous record. But in Marley's case, I think it's very important, too, because like I mentioned, he has such an international audience that was growing. One of the big what-ifs, a guy who dies in his mid-30s, could his audience have become even bigger, but also, importantly, even more international in terms of getting different kinds of audiences, not just a huge audience, Especially if he had been able to tour Africa more, because I know you know this, but not everyone does. Reggae has a huge audience in Africa. And there weren't that many artists then who were going there. And Marley, I think, displayed a lot of courage by going there, knowing that some of the people who were putting on the concerts, they weren't going to be as easy to deal with as people in North America or in Europe, And there was more danger involved in some of the situations, but it was very important for him to bring that message to Africa, which even more than Jamaica, many areas impoverished, many areas where people felt a sense of disempowerment. And his music was so important in giving a message of empowerment, not just to people of color, but to everybody. So... Getting back to what I covered in the book, I think it is important, even though he didn't play in Africa very much, to make a note of exactly, more or less, what happened there. And also how, like, even in places you might not suspect, Italy, where at that time, certainly, there wasn't that great a level of English spoken there. He was getting huge stadium audiences, bigger than he, as far as I could tell, was getting in the United States. Well, what does that mean, It means that he was so skilled at devising songs, which could be easily understood, even if you couldn't grasp um, if your level of English wasn't that high. But also that the message was, in a sense, very pure, and it could affect people who you might not think would have a connection with the Jamaican experience. As an aside, I didn't mention this in the book. I went to Sicily not long after the book came out. And it amazed me, maybe you've had this experience or your listeners have, if you've traveled widely, for people who were busking, semi-professional people playing on the sidewalks. Aside from maybe the Beatles, Bob Marley songs were the most frequently sung. And this is in Sicily, not an area like maybe London or Paris. You might associate with, yeah, everybody knows One Love or Get Up, Stand Up, and of course... People playing on the sidewalk for change are going to play those songs because people in those cities know that material really well. This isn't even Rome. This is Sicily. And you could almost count on hearing those songs. Not just the two I mentioned, but a bunch of Miley songs.
0: Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, I've seen a I've seen a reggae cover band in Hong Kong. Playing Bob Marley songs, it's, you know. Sometimes you're 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 off somewhere in the world, and you turn down an alleyway, and you see a bunch of Marley posters and flags and stuff. It's uh, his music is really incredibly universal. I would say um, I love that you showed the side of him with the touring and all that, um, because it shows the work that's put in. We have a tendency, I think, to think that our stars are just. They're just born with it and then boom, they become stars. And it's like, well, they might have some talent they were born with, but you don't get anywhere (laughs) without hard work. And he wasn't, you know, Mm. chilling on a beach all the time just being Bob Marley. Like he was out and doing it and album after album and tour after tour. So I appreciate, you know, because sometimes you get the attitude like, you know, Oh, it must be nice to be, you know, this and that. And it's like, well, you know, those people are working just as hard as anyone else. In some cases, even harder and making a ton of sacrifices along the way, whether it's their families or financial security or whatever it is. So I I appreciate you showing that side of it. And you also have reviews in there um, from shows like, which is something else that I've never really seen that much is like, a snippet from Melody Maker or whatever back in the uh, seventies about a show. Um, How important was it for you to really show uh, uh, the the contemporary notes made on Bob Marley and the Whalers at the time that they were playing?
1: It was very important to show how Marley was perceived when he was alive and performing, because it's hard to believe he's been gone for 40 years And this was unusual, even among superstars. His legend and popularity just kept growing and growing. And it's important to remember that he made a big impact in the last 10 years of his life all around the world. That grew during those 10 years, of course. Most of the reviews were quite positive. But it's also interesting because the reviewers at that time were usually not that familiar with reggae music. Not through any fault of their own, but there had been very few reggae hits. There was the Jimmy Cliff song I mentioned, Desmond Decker, The Israelites. But for the most part, unless you were really clued in, especially in the United States, which didn't have the Jamaican community of London, you had very little opportunity to hear it. So hearing how fresh it was when somebody from the San Francisco Chronicle or The New York Post or even places that were not as big media centers like Pittsburgh or Minneapolis might have reacted to that upon their first hearing of Marley. I think it's really interesting. It's also interesting when you go through the concert history, how much work Marley and the Whalers put in. Some of the early bills they had were really interesting. In New York, playing with Bruce Springsteen. Not just one show, several shows, when (laughs) Springsteen was virtually unknown. That must have been an amazing show because both of those guys, of course, gave their all pretty much at every concert. But they must have really been giving their all at these sort of showcases in New York where most of the people probably had not heard much or at all of their music. It was when Springsteen's first album had just come out. Marley had a lot of records out, but only Catch a Fire was pretty much available in the United States real easily but also some of they had uh, Marley had to be a support act sometimes with acts which weren't reggae and that i think is a sacrifice not of a material kind but almost of a spiritual kind i know people here might not know who i am they might not like me at first but it's really important to put my music out there it's imp- interesting that he shared a bill with Sly Stone when Sly Stone And the Family Stone, they were superstars, much better known than Bob Marley. Still hard to figure out, did they leave that tour because Sly Stone was annoyed? They were starting to get a good reception, or maybe it was just for other reasons. But also the combinations of bills that he has, sometimes with rock artists, sometimes with reggae artists that were up and coming. It's an important piece of the puzzle of how you build your popularity, I think. And also some of the risks he took for concerts, especially in Jamaica, shortly after there was an attempt at his life, on his life, both him and Rita Marley, by the way, taking the stage a few weeks later at a very charged political event. I think that took a lot of courage. And then it took a lot of courage, one of the defining performances of his career, to get the two guys who were trying to campaign to be prime minister, get them on stage and get them sort of clasping hands together.
0: Yeah,
1: it's sort of like—can you imagine in our country, Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell taking the stage and clasping hands in the service of one cause? Unfortunately, that's probably probably not in the never cars. going to happen yeah. with figures like that at and, this time. But it was as improbable back in the late seventies in Jamaica.
0: Oh, oh yeah, and have you ever seen two less comfortable people in a photograph? Then Manly and Sierra, you know, when he's when he's I like, if you look at those guys faces, they're they're not particularly thrilled to be up there holding hands. And you're right. It would be like or watching Trump and Biden do something like that. It's like, you know, you, you, people need to grasp just just, you know, the gravity of that was unbelievable. And you talked about um, Bob touring with, you know, Springsteen or Sly and the Family Stone. Well, Bob was breaking new ground. There weren't other big reggae acts for him to open for. You know, nowadays if you're a reggae act, you're going with a bigger reggae act and whatever. I know what it's like to be in a reggae band. And there's no other reggae bands around. And it's like, yeah, it's like you have to uh, uh, make those kinds of things. And I know Bob also forged that type of thing uh, in England with the punk bands. Like he he kind of gravitated toward the punk bands because yeah. he's thinking, you know, these are the only guys who are their messages similar to ours. You know, if there's not another. And at the time, you know, you had Aswad coming up, you had Steel Pulse coming up, but he felt that solidarity with the punk bands because that was really, it was really the best he could do to find bands that were on that same uh, uh, mental or, or, or uh, you know, message level that, that he was. So it's fascinating yeah. to see that. Yeah.
1: And I think the punk reggae fusion, musically, it didn't take off, but there was an important after effect that I think Marley and other reggae artists, I want to make sure to credit them, helped spark, which is the rock against racism movement in Britain, there were often on the same bill new wave acts or punk acts like The Clash and reggae acts like Steel Pulse, who you mentioned, or cult, um, or culture. And they were, even if they weren't going to be jamming together necessarily, they were helping to spread a very important message, which unfortunately is still with us today, that... that Racism and attacks on people of color cannot be tolerated. And bringing people together by music can be more effective than it can. I'm not trying to diminish the importance of progressive politicians, but by making speeches or writing these sort of treatises on why it's important. Getting some entertainment level involved in it as well. And then if people start to think about it as the result of enjoying a concert, that's very important too. And Marley did that. Other reggae artists and other New Aven punk artists, actually, more in Britain than here, did that, too.
0: Oh, I think 100 percent. I think, you know, you know, people tend to be kind of closed off to new ideas. a lot. it's just human nature. We're closed off to new ideas, um, you know, foreign thoughts and all those things. I think music has always been. I have a theory that that music and food can save the world and can bring us all together. Uh, And I don't know that (laughs) anyone uh, uh, embodied that more than Bob Marley. And, you know, people say John Lennon, too, uh, and that's fine. But, um, you know, people like that, they really do bring us closer. There really are. Music is that common thread that can really bind through, if not all of us, most of us. And I think if you have a message you get across, reggae uh, reggae or music in general is a good way to do it because it can soften the blows of that message that people might not normally want to hear. So, um, you know, obviously a great thing. And yeah, I think, I think that did spur a lot of the rock against racism movement. And of course, with the work of steel pulse and the clash, a lot of, a lot of the other bands in there Um, switching subjects. Something I really dug about the book is we all know where this started. It started with the whalers, Peter and bunny, uh, and also other people that were involved at the time, Uh, Joe Higgs uh, and uh, other folks that were involved. I love that throughout the book, even long after they left, the whalers. You kept you keep checking in with Peter and Bunny. Um. Was it? How important was it to you to make sure? Because in other books, a lot of times that gets left behind. If it's a book, bu- if it's a book specifically about Bob. Okay, these guys were in the band and then they left and then you know Bob went on. Uh, how important was it? For you to make sure, like, look, this is the illustrated history, the ultimate illustrated history of Bob Marley and the Whalers. And we're mm-hmm. gonna keep we're gonna keep showing what these original whalers were doing, you know, throughout the book. It was crucial to me. And this never came up with the
1: editor who gave me a lot of freedom to cover what I wanted, but I would not have done the book if I could not have given significant attention to Peter Tosh. And Bonnie Whaler. One reason is kind of selfish. I just think the music is very good and interesting, certainly when they were together with Bob Marley, but also afterward. Peter Tosh, much more than Bonnie Whaler, but also Bonnie Whaler, they played as solo artists a big part in what Bob was doing as well, maybe on a higher level because he was more popular. Peter Tosh, I, when I was a teenager in the 70s, I heard. And started to hear him very shortly after hearing Bob Marley, especially when Legalize got a lot of FM radio airplay. But also when they were together with the Whalers, it wasn't just Bob Marley and other guys. I wanted to make that clear. Tosh and Whaler didn't write and sing as much, but they were good at doing that. But also they gave a complimentary mentioned to Bob's music, where it was a band. It wasn't Bob Marley and these side musicians, sort of. They're very important, too. Something that I mentioned in the book, which I don't think maybe other Marley biographers give as much weight to, I think if they had just been able to stay together for one or two more albums in that original incarnation for Island Records, those records would have had the potential to be even greater. Kind of like The Beatles, they had John and Paul, but George started to write more, and he gave a different dimension to some of the original material they were doing, but at the same time, this music and way of writing was similar enough to Lennon McCartney's, where it didn't jar at all. I think that maybe Island was pushing Bob too quickly and too much to the fore, because you could have easily had a really good double album like the Beatles White Album, a very rough comparison where you had maybe half Bob songs, maybe 30, 35% Peter Tosh songs, the rest Bunny songs. And that would have been a really interesting dynamic combination, especially now that they had the resources of Island Records and some session musicians like Rabbit Bundrick and um, Wayne Perkins that they could call upon to fill out what um family man and others were also already contributing to them didn't happen probably wasn't destined to happen but it's an intriguing what if keep those three guys together on a more equal basis i think the records could have possibly been even better i'm not diminishing any of the records that they came out with but having a synergy that's not always possible when people break off and do their own thing
0: yeah i I agree i agree totally um I like how you, you mentioned this earlier. I will kind of want to bring it back where some of these things we just don't know the reason. There's no cut and dry thing. There's no statement from, you know, one thing that a lot of people have talked about with with Bunny is he didn't like the cold. He didn't want to tour. It was too cold. And like, you know, I've heard that in a lot of places. But you go further to say, you know, basically that, look, you had three stars in one band. Like how, you know, how long was this really going to work that people need to, 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 to spread their wings. And, and so no matter how long you were going to keep it together, you know, and we've seen this with other, what we would call super groups, you know, we've seen Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, or just Crosby, Stills and Nash, or just Crosby and Stills, like, you know, or just Crosby, like, you know, we, we've seen that where, you know, it, it's, it would be really cool. I wish more bands like that would realize, you know what, we can do this and that. We can do our thing and then we can come back together and, and you know, but you don't normally see bands do that. But you really, you really made a point of of saying there, it's like, you know, for all of these reasons that we've heard, you know, this guy was jealous, this guy didn't want a to tour, this guy did that like Peter say, you have a quote from Peter in the book where he said something about, you know, um. Being and I, I wish I could remember the the the, the quote because this idea just popped into my head about you know oh, I was been with you know the same thing for 11 12 years and it's, it's time. It's just time It's it's like it's time to go and do my own thing and I, I don't think enough people realize Like yeah with the talent that we all saw Out of Peter out of bunny after they left the band, you know They weren't going to be contained in there for long But it it definitely would have been nice if we'd have gotten another album or two Out of this collaboration right And I think you brought
1: up a good point Why couldn't they have done Simultaneously solo careers But once in a while We're going to get together Do some of our songs where we think It really enhances the material To have all three of us singing and playing on it And another what if Although I'm not big on reunions After a group has sort of peaked And then broken up If Marley had lived longer And Peter Tosh had lived longer Maybe once in a while they would come together and do records and then they would go back and focus on their solo careers. Cause Peter Tosh died pretty young too yeah. in his early forties. That well, was about a little more than five years or five years or so after Bob Marley died in. Yeah. And another, what if um, it's always puzzled me. So Bob Marley had problems with his foot or his toe. And if it had been caught earlier, then he would have survived. And I'm not a medical professional, but that always sounded kind of strange to me that having a toe injury that wasn't treated promptly could eventually cause somebody to die. And in the book, I also note, well, what could have been done and what was actually happening to Bob medically? I think this might've been an unfortunate side effect of his spirituality. It was kind of like, well, there's this sort of invincibility about me now and I, um, I'm going to get through this no matter what and I don't want to go through hospital treatments, especially if I have to get a toe amputated. That's another what if. Could we just go back there to the point where it was realized he had a medical problem and say, look, if you don't do this now, you're not going to live. If you do it now, you might not live the way you want to 100%. But you're going to have a really long career in life. It's right. really tragic that didn't happen.
0: It's absolutely tragic, and and like everything else we've talked about, you know, I've heard so many different reasons about why he didn't go get the proper treatment. You know, whether he, you know, he listened to bad medical advice that said, oh, we'll do some skin grafts and it'll be fine. Uh, you know, I've heard people say he didn't want the toe amputated because it would affect how he performed on stage, which, you know, yes, definitely. which, which, you know, sounds mind blowing. And there's also, you know, for the, for those of us who are men and uh, are not great at going to the doctor, there's also that stubborn male thing in there. That's like, no, no, I'll be fine. I'm not, I'm not going to the doctor. So yeah, like everything else we've talked about, man, it's like there's so many different angles and this person says that this person says that I don't know that we've ever seen a musician to have more mystery around, what we would consider even the mundane things even the everyday things <laughs> right like so, so much mystery is there any did you what did you find that that really surprised you that really was like you know huh like that's that's kind of an amazing thing
1: boy there's a a bunch of stuff but his and the whalers early relationship with a very prominent Jamaican producer, um, and that producer, Leslie, I'm sure, you know, you're familiar with him. There was some feeling like he had jinxed their career. Hmm. It, it almost seems, especially from coming from a standard American upbringing, like superstitious, like why would this guy, um, uh, By putting out a record that's sort of misleadingly packaged, why is this guy like the devil? And why did Bunny Whaler say or claim in subsequent interviews, well, I or we put a curse on him. And that's why um, Leslie Kahn died. He died very young,
0: young, very young. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I mean, yeah, about as young as Bob Marley did. And that was one of the things I couldn't straighten out in my head anyway, like, Why were the whalers so upset that by some interpretations, it's like, well, we kind of are putting a curse on this guy and he's not going to be around anymore. Why don't they just like cut ties with him, move on to whether it's Lee Perry or Chris Blackwell and keep doing what they're doing? It's kind of like a different mindset to a music career or a recording career than is familiar to us in North America and the United Kingdom. And I think that it sort of speaks to... Jamaica was it still is, a pretty small country and a small music market. Things were so much different. If you were a star in Jamaica... This is what really wasn't so much a surprise, but it really emphasized to me doing this research. If you were a star in Jamaica you were still kind of poor, materially poor. You had a hard time providing for your family if Bob had children with more than one woman, but he had a central family with Rita Marley. And it was really kind of almost like the world that you see a glimpse of and The Harder They Come, a great movie. It wasn't just that situation or Jimmy Cliff. It was all over, and it wasn't so exaggerated in that movie. And it was sort of like, also, you can have a number one record in Jamaica, according to the charts, and you can still be sleeping on tables and getting five pounds a week in the yeah. mid-60s.
0: Yeah, that's so true.
1: I knew that it was bad bad, and rough for Jamaican artists, and they were getting ripped off sometimes by fellow Jamaicans of color. But the extent of that, I think it also brought home to me, that's why they were so hungry to get that music heard outside of Jamaica, just from a sustainability part, yeah. point of view, I can make a career if I have listeners first in the UK and Europe and then in the in North America. And Bob going back and forth, um, and the details are still kept sketchy to his family, his mother in Delaware, a lot of that just seemed to be, well, I can't make the kind of jama- uh, money in Jamaica as a star as I can, like, Accounts vary. Waiting tables, sweeping factories in Delaware, and I can make money there and bring it back to start a record label. Curtis Mayfield, who was one of his biggest influences, you could never imagine Curtis Mayfield doing that in Chicago. You get a hit record, you endure prejudice, sure, as an African-American in the 60s, but you start to tour, you make money, you get some money from your records, especially if you're the songwriter. It wasn't like that for Marley and Tosh
0: and Livingston. Yeah. You know, I, I, that's such a great point. And I think you're right. I think, yeah. Can you imagine they had all kinds of hit records in Jamaica while he's in Delaware trying to make the money that he, cause he's a star in Jamaica and he's in Delaware, like you said, sweeping floors, waiting tables, whatever else he did, just trying to make money for his family because he wasn't get, you know, we, 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 we all know the entertainment business is dirty, but I think, you know. Reggae fans especially need to realize that it didn't get much dirtier than what was going on back then in the Jamaica. Like you said, it's like you had hit single, guys who had hit single after hit single, and yeah, five pounds a week. Or they'd pay them for the session, and they'd leave, and then that was it. And I think you're right. I think... I think that wasn't that was the motivation behind Bob touring as much as he did and wanting to take it international, along with obviously spreading his message because that was so important to him, but also because, yeah, how do you sustain this? How do you make a living out of this? And also this the starting of his label. I mean, it's 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 an entrepreneurial spirit to look around and say, Man, we keep getting ripped off by the big tree, as he would say. Uh, you know, the the labels in Jamaica at the time. And I'm let's just start our own. Let me go to Delaware. Let me earn some money. Let me try to start our own label. So you you saw that entrepreneurial spirit, I think, throughout his career that he was going to make his own career. He was going to do his own thing.
1: And one of the details, I think I did know this before I researched the book, but it's just mind blowing. This is like 1967 when, as you mentioned, he does start with the Whalers, his own record label. He's literally on a bicycle with like one of those wire baskets in front of the handlebars with records going from store to store delivering this and his wife rita his new wife is like operating a pseudo record store to sell bob marley records on their property and it almost looks like a cage because i guess they were worried about criminals coming in and stealing the inventory those things did happen in jamaica it's a really grassroots level way of taking control of your business and he and the wheelers realized we really need someone like island records to get global distribution but i think one of the big what ifs in the marley story is one of the goals of tough gang was to be sort of like a motown records of kingston not just for the whalers records but for great jamaican talent in general and producers session musicians and songwriters It's achieved that to some degree, and I should say, I haven't been to Jamaica, to be honest, and seen the Tough God premises. It achieved that to some degree, being a really important record label and studio, but I think the scale could have been bigger had Marley lived, continued to be a superstar, and maybe invested some of that in developing Jamaican talent, making a Kingston studio the center, like Motown was in Detroit, and making Motown a fountain of an amazing quantity of classic soul music.
0: That's fascinating. It's funny because the last question I wanted to ask you was, was after doing all this research, where do you think he would have gone had he not, Passed yeah. away untimely, and I think that's that's a great way to say that is because it has because Tuf Gong has gone on to do that for a lot of other artists, but to imagine his influence there, you have to imagine at some point he would have started really producing other artists and branching off and doing other things, and, and to think that he's become—it's hard not to say the biggest artist this planet has ever seen because the biggest artist that we've seen don't get international the way that he does, you know, um, where where you, where you can hear Bob Marley songs being sung every country, every corner of the planet, every village, everywhere. So can you imagine him where he would have gone, what he would have done? Would you see him experimenting with, um, you know, pushing the music, in different directions. I mean, I mean, what is your opinion of that? Where do you think that he would have gone had he still been with us today?
1: Yeah. So I talked about sort of entrepreneurial-wise what might have happened with Tough Gang, Tough Gong. It would have been on an even bigger level. But purely musically, I think a very important song, and I'm sure a lot of people would agree with this, one of his final classics, Redemption Song. Because... If you didn't know the history of reggae and Bob Marley and you heard that for the first time, you wouldn't say, I think, say we're talking from the perspective of somebody born in the 2000s. You wouldn't say that's a reggae song. It almost sounds like a folk song. Redemption song. And I don't think necessarily he would have gone in a direction where there was a lot more of songs like that, where it was more like um, a singer songwriter, as we would say, in the United States. I think, however, potentially, he would have mixed his reggae grounding with other styles, maybe in an unpredictable way. World music, as we call it here, took off a lot more in the 80s and 90s after his passing than it would have been as he experienced when he was alive. And especially if he was touring Africa a lot, he got exposed to people like King Sonny Ade, who was starting to get a big audience here, or Fela, certainly, from Nigeria, but many people, artists from Senegal, more traditional ones, like Ali Farkatora, he might have thought, this is an interesting sort of accent to do in my music, maybe even have some of those guys and women as guest musicians on my albums, or I can guest on their records, and I can bring some of that in. I think that his music could have gone in an interesting, multiple interesting directions, had he done that. Some of his later work, and I do note this in the book, even at the time it was criticized, well, it's not as exciting as Catch a Fire or it's just kind of repeating stuff he's done before as sort of formulaic. But with Redemption Song, which was one of his latest recordings, that proved to me that he would not have probably stayed in one place or just kind of rested on a certain sound that he had typecast.
0: That's really interesting to hear you say that, because I've always felt that... Bob's a reggae artist, but he was a songwriter working yeah. in the reggae genre that, you know, there's a lot of cats that, you know, they can do one thing, they can do it really well. I feel like if Bob wanted to do rock, he could have done rock. If he wanted to do folk or country or like i I've, his songs were so strong. That, yes, they're reggae songs, but they would have worked in any format, any genre, because his songwriting was so good. Um, so it's interesting to hear you say that, that you kind of feel the same way about, you know, he could have done this and that. Because, because yeah, and Redemption Song is definitely one of the things that shows you that. Like, he could do that as well as anybody.
1: Yeah. And also, going through his interviews, and I hope this doesn't sound like buying into a stereotype When he was speaking about his music and Rastafariism and world life, he wasn't always the most articulate fellow. I don't think that had solely to do with the Patois, which can be hard for people to understand initially if they're not from Jamaica. But there was a great quote that I found that ends the principal part of the book where in the aftermath of his funeral, some of his fans, not just celebrities, are being interviewed and someone said... Well, he might not have expressed himself so eloquently when he was speaking, but in his music, in his songs, he expressed exactly what people were feeling. And I think that's a very important point. It doesn't matter to me so much that he wasn't as great an interview subject as Paul McCartney or uh, Stevie Wonder or quite a few other people that we could mention, Joni Mitchell. The music is what's most important, and the songs. And the songs have a lot of clarity, both in the actual words and Mm. for whatever reason, the way he sang. I've seldom heard people say, I have a hard time understanding what he's actually saying. Right. But They might with some hard rock groups who come from the United States, where I might sound kind of mumbly. Everybody says, yeah, I know he's saying, get up, stand up, stand up for your rights. It's not hard to physically understand that and i think on some level he knew that in a song you are direct and understandable in an english that is almost universally comprehended
0: yeah i once heard a uh, and i don't remember where i saw this read this or what but it was a, a theory about and contrasting bob and peter as interview subjects where like you said you know bob was Patois sometimes seemed disinterested and, and comparing that to Peter who um, spoke very slowly and articulated everything because, you know, and the comparison was that Peter wanted you to understand every word. Whereas Bob was kind of testing the interviewer to see if they were <laughs> on his wavelength or not. Now, again, this is this, all of this has always been speculation. We don't know if it's true, but like you said, Every word on every song on every album by Bob is pretty understandable. Now, you might come across a term you don't understand because he was using a Jamaican term or something, but you understood every word, you say every word that he's saying. So it definitely seems to me that, um, however his interview style was, uh, it was thought out. and And however it came out, that's exactly how he wanted it, because you could see the contrast in the song. So to me, whatever his reasons were for doing it that way, Uh, He certainly had his reasons.
1: (laughs) There was one interesting story I came across in my research that when he was in Africa and some of the people involved in setting up the concerts were sort of uh, shady characters, he said to someone in his entourage who might not have understood what was going on, he said, "Um, I think you should leave now. You should leave this meeting And the guy, who I think was an American, um, relayed, he said it in almost like King's English, because it was so important that this guy not be in danger. I mean, Bob Marley said this warning in very clear, you know, more conventional, what we hear in the UK or US English. I think you should leave now. No, wanted to make it in spoken terms very unmistakable what he was advising. So it might've been a choice to some degree, but if it was a choice in his music, he made the choice, make sure that people from wherever they are in the world, even if they don't know English that well, can understand it.
0: Yeah. I always say to young singers, young musicians, it, the 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 articulation, the enunciation of your words when you're singing on songs. Maybe you don't care. Maybe it means nothing to you. But if your audience doesn't understand what you're saying, then your words have no meaning. And so it's a great example of Bob Marley to the communication level in songs. Music isn't just entertainment. It's also communication. And if you want your words to have weight, if you want people to understand them, then you make them understand them. And, and Bob is such a great, you know, along with all the other things that he can influence on people. Hopefully he has that influence on young musicians to say, look, this is this is the way this should be done because you want that message to get across. Well, man, it's been so much fun talking with you. So the book is Bob Marley and the Whalers, The Ultimate Illustrated History by Richie Unterberger. Uh, please, uh, book's out now. Please tell us where everyone can get the book. Uh, tell us about some of your other books that are out there, your socials, websites, everything. Give it all to us.
1: Also, I want to mention the book Bob Marley... And The Wailers and Illustrated History. It's actually the second edition. It's not much different from the first edition, which came out six years ago. It has some update at the end, particularly about the upcoming Bob Marley biopic, which I haven't seen, and there's still not too much specific information that's circulated about that. Just a quick note, I'm not a big fan of music biopics, I tell my friends, you don't want to see a biopic with me because I'm going to keep saying that never happened or that's wrong. That's that often too. how it's done I do in almost too, every man. biopic. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, there are some which are better than others. Um, the one on Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys was largely accurate, for instance. It might, however, have a very big effect on getting people curious about his music and his life and going to books and his records. I think that's a lot more important than what might be a sort of fictionalized or adulterated portrayal in the movie, which I have not seen, so I don't want to sound too judgmental. But as far as finding the book, Quarto Publishing has very good distribution, so it should be widely available in bookstores. And although I urge people to support bookstores if they can, I know some of your listeners might not be too near a bookstore, and there are less bookstores these days, unfortunately. Online outlets, including the biggest ones, but also some smaller ones. Harry, the book. And the book that I am working on now, it's a subject much different than Bob Marley and the Whalers. A comprehensive biography of the Velvet Underground, Hmm. the Reed's Group. That's not for the same publisher as for Omnibus Press in London, although they have distribution in the United States. For this publisher, I've also done a book. That's, again, a much different subject. Fleetwood Mac. There's a parallel in the way I approached that book, by the way. A lot of people are only familiar with Fleetwood Mac through their very big hit records in the States, Rumors and the others around that. But they went through a lot of personnel changes. They started as a blues rock group that were led by a very talented songwriter, guitarist, and singer named Peter Green. Yeah, Peter Green, yeah. And I, t- Yeah, I took that assignment because I thought it was so important in a pretty mainstream book to devote like one quarter, one third of the book to the Peter Green era where they started because he's still overlooked other books that I have done. You mentioned some of them, the unreleased Beatles, the rare material, the history of 1960s folk rock, how folk and rock combined a book on the who in the early 1970s. I, just a couple of years ago, did a book for passion books that's not on music, the history of San Francisco, where I live, through photographs from 1850 to the present. So I like to keep busy, as you know, but rather than sort of giving a resume, I have a website, if anyone listeners are interested, com. I know it's a long name. At least nobody else is going to take that website with a name like that. And that site has basic details about my books and the courses I teach. Some of them, actually most of them these days, they're on Zoom. Sometimes I get people from Florida or Mexico tuning in. So you don't have to be in the Bay Area to take them in person. I've done them on 15 different subjects. And I haven't done one on Bob Marley or Reggae, but I do a course on, I call it Respect minorities in popular music in the mid to late 20th century and there's an entire two sessions on reggae music and bob marley of course is a big part of those two two two-hour classes i also cover of course people like twits and the maytals and quizzy johnson there are many people to cover in reggae music with that topic
0: yeah well, that's really cool. So let the record show that uh, Richie Unterberger is not a lazy author. He He's written much and he's continuing to write, so definitely check out everything. And you can also confirm for the audience, please, that I have not been compensated in any way to say that Bob Marley and the Whalers, The Ultimate Illustrated History, is a fantastic book that you know, if if you know little about Bob, if you know a lot about Bob, and everywhere in between, this is a book you should definitely check out. I highly recommend it. Richie, thank you so much for joining me on the Talking Reggae Podcast, man.
1: Thanks for having me, Jay.